and welcome to another episode of the End Time Blog Podcast. I'm Elizabeth Prada. Today I'm talking about fasting. What is it? Should I do it? And how should I do it? The Christian practice of fasting is not talked a lot um, about in churches today. Now, I'm careful to say Christian fasting because other religions have fasts. Ramadan in the Muslim religion is a month-long fast with many prescribed rules. Catholics between the ages of 18 and 59 are obligated to fast on certain holy days of the year and during Lent and in certain prescribed ways, and so on. But Christians, saved by the grace of God and the blood of Jesus, are not obligated to fast. There's no command in the New Testament commanding a Christian to fast. But it's a worthwhile spiritual practice in which Jesus expected a believer might choose to engage. So, but there are no rules for it, thankfully. However, fasting seems to be a spiritual duty the believer might want to perform at least on occasion. So Jesus gave some thumbnail outlines for the practice in Matthew 6, 16 to 18. Jesus said in the verse, Now, whenever you fast, do not make a gloomy face as the hypocrites do. For they distort their faces so they will be noticed by people when they are fasting. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But as for you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by people, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, here are some examples in the New Testament of fasting. Well, of course, Jesus fasted in the desert wilderness for his temptation, Matthew 4, 2. Fasted for 40 days and nights. I love the verse at the end. It said he fasted for 40 days and nights, and then Jesus was hungry. Well, yeah. Anna served the Lord in the temple by praying and fasting frequently. Luke 2.37. That was one way the widow could serve the Lord. Fasting is always mentioned in conjunction with prayer. In Acts 13.1-3, Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, Menaean, and Saul, Paul, were serving the Lord and fasting, quote-unquote, at Antioch. When you see serving the Lord, it usually meant praying. But in that verse, the word is also more extensive, meaning they could have been performing any service unto the Lord in conjunction with their fast. Paul and Barnabas prayed with fasting before appointing elders in all the churches. We see that in Acts 14.23. Fasting can be privately habitual. It says Cornelius habitually fasted. Acts 10.30, some translations have him praying at the ninth hour. Others say he was fasting at that hour. Now again, fasting and prayer are tied together. 
You can pray without fasting, of course, but fasting without prayer is pretty spiritually meaningless. Saul, Paul, fasted after he was visited by Jesus on the Damascus Road for three days and three nights. It says he ate and drank nothing. Many people fast and pray ahead of a decision or during a trial or a time of deep spiritual anguish, as Paul was doing there. There is such a thing as a national prayer and fast. U.S. President John Adams called for a national day of prayer, fasting, and humiliation on March 23, 1798, because the new nation of the United States was being harassed by a foreign power. He said, it has appeared to me that the duty of imploring the mercy and benediction of heaven on our country demands at this time a special attention from its inhabitants. John Adams said in part, I have therefore thought fit to recommend, and I here do hereby recommend, that Wednesday, the ninth day of May next, be observed throughout the United States as a day of solemn humiliation, fasting, and prayer, that the citizens of these states abstaining on that day from their customary worldly occupations, offer their devout addresses to the Father of mercies, agreeably to those forms or methods which they have severally adopted as the most suitable, and that all religious congregations do, with the deepest humility, acknowledge before God the manifold sins and transgressions with which we are justly chargeable as individuals and as a nation, beseeching him at the same time of his infinite grace through the Redeemer of the world, freely to remit all our offenses. Well, that was John Adams calling for a national day of prayer and fasting. And famously, President Abraham Lincoln also called for a national fast in the United States. His proclamation appointing a national fast day was issued for March 30th, 1863, smack in the middle of that four-year civil war. He wrote, We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God that made us. It behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power, to confess our national sins, and to pray for clemency and forgiveness. Whether private or corporate, the first step in fasting, oh, that was the end of um, Abraham Lincoln, by the way. So whether private or corporate, the first step in fasting is to confess sin. Now, the confession of sin is more of an Old Testament preface to fasting and prayer. But as with the New Testament, 
supping at the Lord's table with the admonition to clear the decks of your life and conscience of sin before partaking, I believe it's also wise to ensure that your devotion to Christ through prayer and fasting is not polluted with unconfessed sin. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and avails much, says James 5.16. So alternately, you'd think if one is not righteous, their prayer would be less likely to be powerful. Humble yourself as you enter your fast. You're going before the throne of God for a reason or issue you earnestly want to bring to the Lord. So don't complicate it with unconfessed sin. Now, normally, fasting and prayer are done for like negative reasons, so-called, as in before a decision, an urgent need, a national or personal calamity, and so on. Jesus said in answer to the disciples of John, who asked why Jesus' disciples do not fast, Jesus replied that fasting is a mourning activity, M-O-U-R-N. And while the groom was with them, they weren't mourning. And that can be seen in Matthew 9, 14 to 15. So treat fasting and prayer as a serious endeavor. We should not enter into it lightly or for the wrong reasons. Hence, confessing our sin first. Now, speaking of the wrong reasons... Fasting doesn't, quote, force God, unquote, to pay attention to your prayer more than he would if he were just plain old praying. It's more for the believer to demonstrate devotion to God in a single-minded pursuit of him for himself on behalf of the issue or person you're praying, fasting for. Fasting is a punctuation to prayer, not the point of it. The other wrong way to fast and pray is to parade it in front of people to show your piety, as Jesus warned about the hypocritical Pharisees. So we are we fast to divest ourselves of something that would otherwise crowd our attention. So to that end, most people fast from food. And that's the description of New Testament prayer and fasting, fasting from food. Don Whitney tends more toward fasting from food as being the true fasting, but he does accept Martin Lloyd-Jones' expanded definition of a fast that includes a cessation of any activity that would otherwise distract your attention from the prayers. A person can fast from any activity that would take time away from prayer and a conscious, continual devotion to the throne of God. And in the Jesus times, food procurement and preparation was a lengthy and labor-intensive process. You couldn't just go to Walmart and get groceries. You couldn't drive through McDonald's and grab a burger. There wasn't even a means of storing food for any length of time. And anything prepared would go bad pretty soon in the desert temperatures. So for them, fasting from food made sense because it would free up the believer to engage in solemn prayer more constantly. I fast, but it's not habitual, meaning a set time I always do it. 
I do it when I feel a strong spiritual burden or when I feel a spiritual anguish that needs attention. When I fast, it is always from food. I have found that my mind drifts toward food more often than I think. And it's not just the three times a day, you know, oh, I'm hungry. But things like, did I take down the chicken to defrost? Do I have all the ingredients for dinner? How long will it take me to cook this or that? Should I do grocery shopping today or tomorrow? Taking away all the activity surrounding food gathering, preparation, eating, and cleaning up clears a lot of mental time, really. Doing my fast, whenever I think of anything related to food, I stop what I'm doing right then and there and pray for my identified issue with a total focus, or at least a pointed focus. Usually when I begin, I declare my fast out loud in my prayer. It's a kind of an oath or a vow. A ligonier has a devotional on New Testament oaths. I find that if I say it out loud and dedicate my fast to Jesus, I'm more inclined to keep it, given the solemnity of swearing an oath to begin with. Again, that Ligonier link has um, a description of what that means. So again, this is personal. You may choose to fast differently, of course. I have fasted in the past and prayed for a unique issue in my former or current church, for a personal heavy decision, for salvation for someone, or when I feel especially deeply attacked in spiritual warfare. When I do it, I usually declare the fast for a certain amount of time, 24 hours, two days, three days. But once in a while, I declare a fast um, with no time limit, letting the Holy Spirit guide me as to when the pressure might still be on or off. However, I do always try to make it at least 24 hours. Now, if you have medical issues, please check with your doctor before beginning any fast from food. I personally tend to get dizzy by the end of a three-day fast. When I end a fast, I punctuate it with one last prayer in thanks to the Lord for hearing my prayers for the privilege of being able to come to the throne boldly and for his will to be done. If you decide to fast and pray, however you decide to do it, it's an individual discipline and only guided by the few scriptures mentioned above and below. I do recommend fasting occasionally though, I really do. It is spiritually refreshing and I believe it honors Jesus. If you want to find some resources about fasting, well, sad to say, there are a lot of bad books, bad material out there guiding the believer in fasting. When I began my recent fast, I looked for good materials to review in order to ensure I was doing it right and for the right reasons. Who there's not a lot, but I have some resources, and I've read these resources I'm going to recommend to you, all of them. And I recommend um, the following to you wholeheartedly. Um, resources on fasting. Um, 
There's one by Paul Washer called Understanding the Discipline of Fasting. It's part of the Biblical Foundations for the Christian Faith series, and it's a slim book, kind of a workbook almost, and it's only 525. There's one from the Cultivating Biblical Godliness series by Daniel Hyde called Why Should I Fast? And I got that one on Kindle for $2.99 and read it pretty quickly. It's not long, and it's only $4.78 for the booklet. There is a really good series by Don Green at gty.org. It's four blog posts, um, fasting in the Old Testament, fasting in the Sermon on the Mount, fasting in the New Testament, and fasting today. And I've found in general that anything by Don Green is always worth reading. Now, this book I'm going to mention is actually a series of eight sermons preached by the English Puritan Arthur Hildersham. And it was at the outbreak of plague in England in 1625 and 26. Now, he deals with corporate prayer and fasting, but it's still a worthwhile resource for what fasting is preached by a really good source. Um, it's called Fasting, Prayer, and Humiliation for Sin by Arthur Hildersham. And it's available at Amazon for $9.99 in the Kindle version, but available as a hardcover book at Reformation Heritage Books. And it's on sale right now for eight bucks. And this is the one that I have. Um, other resources I have not read but can recommend are by Don Whitney. He has a book called Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, and his chapter 9 deals exclusively with fasting. And you'll find a lot of online quotations from this resource. Martin Lloyd-Jones, um, from his sermons on uh, Sermon on the Mount, and it's called Studies in the Sermon on the Mount. And the section in Matthew that talks about fasting, he has an extensive um, explanation about it. And on the blog post, there's a quick list of fasting in the Bible by subject from R.A. Torrey, um, a scriptural textbook um, listed by topic. So those are some resources for you. And I encourage you, if you want to fast, I pray that this helps you. If you've decided to fast for the glory of Christ and personal devotion to him, now, Jesus is the bread of life. Why not feast solely on him for a period of time? Well, this has been another episode of the End Time Blog Podcast. I'm Elizabeth Prada, and I hope you all have a wonderful day. Thank you.